Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years' experience of working with young people, and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, you'll hear from Grace Barrett, speaker, activist, musician, and co-founder of award-winning emotional and lifestyle education group, The Self-Esteem Team. And so I remember being about four years old and becoming aware that I look different to everybody around me. My dad looks different to me because he's black and my mum looks different to me because she's white. I was probably about six or seven years old when I first saw somebody that looked like me and that person was Scary Spice. (laughs) Having reached over a hundred thousand people in the UK and beyond, Grace left the self-esteem team to focus on her new anti-racism education programme, I Am Ally. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up and this is Grace Barrett. Grace, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hi. So tell me, what was behind the decision to set up I Am Ally? Well, I've been continuing my own mental health journey and understanding more about my mental health. Um, I sort of had to recognize that therapy for me was like a long-term need rather than something that was there to put out a fire. And as I did that and I carried on this learning, it became impossible to disconnect race from the issues that I have with my mental health. For example, when you go for um, mental health screening, doctors and psychologists are looking at various different kind of warning signs, um, things that might be a precursor for you having a serious mental health issue. And those might be things like growing up in a home with people that struggled with addiction, um, but also being from a, for want of a better phrase, BAME background, is considered a precursor for having a serious mental health issue. And so I think what that means is that the experience of growing up in the UK as a person of colour is a traumatic one. And that's a really sad thing to hear and to accept. But for me, it became impossible not to see that correlation and not to accept that Mm. I mean, we've spoken before and you've said that as a mixed race girl growing up in a stable, comfortable family, you feel that actually you were in denial about what you've experienced um, and that perhaps at the time you felt that you had nothing to complain about because, as you say, you were in a loving family. So talk to us a bit about your experience as a mixed race girl growing up in the UK and perhaps how this has affected you as an adult. So I grew up in a really Caucasian area, which meant that I was always the odd one out. And the correlation, I think, between that and mental health issues is that a sense of belonging is really important for having good mental health. And so right from the jump, regardless of how people interacted with me, I was aware of my difference. And so I remember being about four years old and becoming aware that I looked different to everybody around me. And even within my family, you know, I have an older brother, but we look quite different. And then, of course, my dad looks different to me because 
he's black and my mum looks different to me because she's white. And so actually I was probably about six or seven years old when I first saw somebody that looked like me and that person was Scary Spice, (laughs) (laughs) which was like an amazing experience to kind of see yourself reflected back. But for me, that happened really late in my life. And also the branding of that person was that she was scary. And so as much as that, you know, I'm sure wasn't intentional when the Spice Girls were created, (laughs) um, the messaging that you get around what people like you mean in the world is also really difficult messaging. So those kind of seeds of self-doubt and the idea that you need to encourage people to believe that you're a good person, that you are safe to be around, that you are capable, all of those things. And so consequently, well, you're kind of moving through the world in a way that isn't conducive to good mental health at that point. So you become the person that needs to be the friendly, funny one all the time. You know, you people please, you want to make sure everybody else feels like they're okay around you. And those things aren't conducive to good mental health. So one of my strategies was to become a performer. And I think that that was twofold. I think that that meant that I was giving people permission to look at me. And that was something that was happening in my day-to-day life anyway. People would always stare. People, I felt very observed. And so I created this space where I was like, okay, well, it's okay to observe me now. And I felt like I was taking control of that. But then also, I think that that's because the role models that I had in my life at the time were all performers. And me and my brother joke about the fact that, you know, we both grew up two years apart from each other. So in the nineties and he became an athlete and I became a singer. (laughs) And those were the only people of color that we would see. The idea that we could do or be anything else, just it just didn't occur to us. So for me, I think that was like a two birds, one stone kind of approach. And this is what I mean about some of the strategies being really obvious. But I know when I'm doing my classes, I see a lot of students of color who just kind of want to blend in. And when I wasn't performing, that's exactly how I felt. If I was in a social situation, I wanted to be the person that was kind of holding court and taking control of the conversation so that it didn't feel like it was going to go in a direction that I was uncomfortable with. But in class, I just kind of wanted to shrink and disappear. But I was also scared that if I seemed like a pushover or if I seemed shy, that that would make me more of a target. So it was constantly trying to walk this line between wanting to disappear and also wanting to protect myself, which is tough. How upsetting, Grace. The stress that you must have experienced in negotiating those different situations and code switching all the time was bound to have an impact on your mental health. You know, something that I've talked about with some of my old teachers is just lack of protection. And that means that you're constantly in a space where you're hypervigilant and effectively hypervigilance is anxiety. That consistent stress, but also effectively living in anxiety that when you step out of the door, you don't know what's going to happen to you. And you don't feel that the adults around you know how to protect you or will protect you. You talk about, you know, feeling like you were very much on show and very different and other. We are very aware that racism manifests itself in very obvious ways, but also in more kind of insidious and subtle ways. And both obviously cause trauma to its victims and continue to create divisions. Can you talk to us a bit more about this and perhaps define 
the term microaggressions that we hear about much more these days? A microaggression is that thing around othering. So anytime somebody's drawing attention to you and making it feel or seem as though you are out of the norm, microaggressions are really connected to this idea that whiteness is always in the center. Whiteness is the most normal. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've heard this a lot. This idea of, well, we'll be the minority soon that sometimes comes from white people. And I find that really interesting because actually, you know, the people that are the majority within the world are people of color. So this idea that there should always be more whiteness, it should always be in the middle. And most microaggressions, I think, are connected to that idea that white is normal, white is at the center, there should always be more of that. I mean, a lot of black women talk about how people interact with their hair. And I know a lot of people are bored of hearing that because they don't understand the significance of it, but it is incredibly significant. Um, for me, actually having been a performer and having to wear various different costumes and different wigs at different points, I notice how people interact with me differently when my hair is natural and when it's not. I think people see me as more of a thing than a person when my hair is natural. So they feel comfortable taking ownership of me or my personal space much more readily when my hair is natural or particularly when it's out in an afro. The amount of times people touch me without asking questions or they go to touch me and I'm able to kind of back away or stop them. The kind of response is usually like, oh, well, I just want to feel what it's like. (laughs) But you're in the realms of consent there, surely. Absolutely. And that's another part of coming back to that people pleasing. I spent such a long time thinking that actually it was everybody's right to pet me, you know, and invade my personal space. And it's taken probably until I was in my late twenties until I felt comfortable saying to people like, no, you can't do that. But yeah, I think really it comes back to this idea that white is normal. And so most microaggressions, I think are connected to that. And And I guess the thing with microaggressions is that they're small. um, And so it feels really hard to react in the right way because you're aware that that one person doesn't know how significant that is. And you're also aware that if it hadn't have happened five times this week, it probably wouldn't feel like such a big deal. But it's just that kind of death by a thousand cuts, you know? So let's talk about that calling out racist behavior. Mm. I was speaking to a colleague about this, the need to call out racist behavior. And she said, no, you can't make young people of color vulnerable like that until there has been extensive unconscious bias training across society so that you are contextualizing what they are calling out. And as you say, if it's happened five times that week, it's a very, very different lived experience for a young person of color than it is for the white person touching the young person's hair. Not that I'm justifying that at all. So what's your stance on that in terms of calling out racist behavior? I think when it comes to racism, we forget that within school, we're talking about children. I think that if you saw any kind of incident happening to a child that wasn't right or wasn't fair, you would also try and give that child strategies about how to manage those things happening to them. And I think we have to do the same thing when it comes to racism. So 
teaching young people how to kind of create boundaries that feel right for them and then implement them when they feel comfortable to do so is important. You know, everyone's going to have a different boundary. Kind of expecting them to just figure that out as they go along, I don't think is right. As an adult, you will protect them. You will step into that situation and do that on their behalf, advocate for them. That's really, really important. There's no point in just doing that and not giving young people tools to begin to do that for themselves as they get older, because otherwise suddenly they're an adult and they don't know how to do it for themselves. You know, Talking about adults advocating for younger people, does intergenerational trauma come into this, whereby young people are feeling the impact of the racism that's been suffered by their, their parents, their grandparents, their ancestors? Yeah, I think so. And I think that that manifests itself in so many different ways. So for example, I know very little and knew even less when I was younger about my black heritage. Um, and that's because when my father arrived in the UK in the Windrush generation as an eight-year-old boy, he was taught to assimilate. He was taught to be as British as possible. So he stopped speaking Patois. He stopped cooking Caribbean food. He stopped doing all of those things and consequently couldn't pass any of that knowledge on to me when he was an adult. So you know, through my dad's traumatic experience, I feel very disconnected from half of my ancestry. And then on top of that, for my dad learning to assimilate, learning to play the game um, in order to be successful, learning to be a people pleaser and not rock the boat, that was then passed on to me as the strategy to make it through. And not only that, it also got in the way of him properly advocating for me because that's all he'd ever known how to do. And so there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen, I think, f through every generation. Um, but I think that this generation is really taking that and running with it. And I'm so glad to see that. Um, but it is hard because we're having to do that for ourselves. You know, me and my dad still have very heated conversations about what is acceptable and what isn't. And, you know, a lot of people of color have a lot of internalized racism. Sometimes those conversations with elders are also really difficult telling you that you should accept certain treatment and you might not feel that that's the case. What advice would you be offering to parents listening today? Parents whose lived experience as a young person is different to their child? I think it's important to listen to your children and to hear when they're saying that they feel uncomfortable and believe that it's important for them to not be uncomfortable, not just that the focus is on how can we get you to succeed in spite of this thing, because success and comfort are two very different things. And I think we all should have access to both of them. And I think for people of color, actually, Historically, in order to be successful, we have to be in discomfort. And so I would encourage parents to prioritise comfort as much as success. In each episode of Racer Up, we hear from a member of our GDST family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. 
Today, we hear from Claire Bale from Nottingham Girls High School. I'm the Director of Marketing. I'm also a member of the Undivided Steering Group for the GDST and the Trust Consultant for Diversity and Inclusion. I have my own blog called Oh, That's a Bit Racy that's designed to get people talking about race. Talking is a key to learning, to empathy, to taking action and making the world a more equal and equitable place. Here at the GDST, that's what we are committed to doing for all individuals. A year ago, the Undivided Steering Group was formed. We made a promise to listen to our community, to upskill ourselves and to make positive changes and meaningful change across our whole organisation so that everyone, regardless of their characteristics, their personal circumstances or situation, gets a sense of belonging and a sense of being part of the GDST family. So far, we have delivered an extensive training programme We've also formed a really exciting student council with representatives from junior and senior schools across our whole network. We've listened to feedback from our alumni, from our staff body, from our students, and we've held formal surveys as well to start to really gather data and identify how we can make that change. We've enhanced our policies, we've taken a good hard look at our curriculum, and each school has a diversity and inclusion lead to make sure we can all do our bit to make our whole organisation somewhere truly wonderful to be. Next, we're going to really focus on diversifying our curriculum even further. We've also got a big challenge on our hands in terms of driving recruitment, retention and progress of our teaching staff from a diversity perspective. This is something we're really committed to facing into and doing something about. Our ambition is to be a leader in the diversity and inclusion space, not just within schools, but within the world as a whole. We feel we're best placed to make a real difference to the people who are going to lead the world and to our students who are going to make a massive difference in the societies that they're part of. Grace, you have established I Am Ally. So let's talk about how we can become active anti-racism allies. I was really mindful when I was creating I Am Ally that I didn't want it to be something that perpetuated the idea that people of colour have to do this work. And whilst I understand that teachers have a lot on their plate, I think it's really important that this topic becomes something that kind of permeates the culture of the school rather than it just being about a class here and there. And so the main goal of I Am Ally is to upskill teachers. So the program that I want people to take up is this training and mentoring program for teachers that uses like a whole teacher assembly. And then teachers that are particularly passionate can come and sit in and shadow me delivering a class to students then they can deliver that throughout the school and also start to kind of champion, this is what we should be doing, like troubleshooting, these are the problems. Maybe you also end up then with a teacher in the school that other teachers can go to, rather than having to come back to me all the time or to other people of colour. Again, that's allyship. I guess in that way, you are also preempting that sense of defensiveness or being an imposter that some people might feel when they feel uncomfortable broaching racism. Exactly. But I think what that also does then for young people is it tells them that this is a problem for white people to fix. Um, Around June 2020, I don't know if you heard the analogy that Banksy put out, which was that racism is like a leak in an apartment block. So if the person in the penthouse has a leak... Um, and it gets so bad that it starts trickling down to the people below, 
the people below can't fix the leak because it's not a leak in their apartment. But let's say the penthouse for some reason just aren't fixing the leak. It becomes a real problem for the people in the apartments below. And so eventually they'll have to knock down the door and go and fix the leak themselves. And so Banksy was essentially saying that was the moment that people of color decided to knock down the door. But ultimately, what would be better is if the person in the apartment above would just fix the leak. That I think is key to bear in mind. You might feel uncomfortable. You might feel, do I have a right to be talking about this and doing education on this? But actually all you're doing when you do that is fixing the leak and you're teaching white students that moving forward, it's also their job to continue fixing the leak. But it's overcoming that kind of sense of apathy or complicity, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, you know, that system really for me is important. That program is important because it's not just what you're doing. It's how you're doing what you're doing. So there's lots of people wanting to do great work and the content might be amazing, but the how is perpetuating the system that we already have in place. And so making sure that we're using the right how I think is really important. And it's something that I'm finding quite hard to police because it's not necessarily what schools want straight away. So I'm having to be really clear with that boundary, but I believe that that's a teaching moment as well. And empowering people in a different way. Well, I think it's really important to break it all down because since the summer of 2020, I think finally there was this big kind of aha moment for so many people in the UK, which was amazing to see. But when there's an aha moment, you suddenly start to realize how messy <laughs> this topic is um, because we now have a system that functions on racism. So undoing that system feels massively overwhelming. Um, and if you were one person trying to do the whole thing, it would be. But I see it as um, a tangled necklace. You just have to figure out like which bit of the knot you're going to start on. You know, if you start pulling in all directions all at the same time, you end up in more of a pickle. So I think trying to go, okay, this is the part of the knot that I'm going to work on. And making that decision is connected to where do I have influence? And I'm sure many of the parents listening have influence in all kinds of different areas, whether that's in a specific role at work, whether that's within the school that your children go to, whether that's within educating your children, um, et cetera, et cetera. So identifying where you have influence and then identifying what needs to change about that space. Because, you know, a lot of us have heard that allyship isn't passive. That's correct. And there's been a lot of focus on this phrase, doing the work. But I think that that phrase has been misinterpreted. So I think lots of people now believe that learning and reading is doing the work. And I contest that. Of course, it's important to learn and read and understand and listen. But if that's all you do, change isn't going to happen. You may have changed your own understanding and belief and that's cool. And you may be able to have conversations with friends and family and that's cool. But we're talking about dismantling a system. And so if everybody understands more but does nothing, <laughs> the system doesn't change. So looking at the systems in the spaces you have influence over and actively saying, how can I make this better? 
and then implementing it. That's how you can actually be an active ally. What would you say to white people who want to help, who want to be active allies, but are worried about inadvertently offending or using the wrong term or doing the wrong thing? Well, you have to get comfortable with that. <laughs> you, you are not going to get it right all the time. It's not possible. And I think that that's because so many people have such different lived experiences. So, you know, this connect the idea that we sort of believe that all people of color think the same thing. So, you know, this idea that, well, my black friends said that they want to be called X. And then you say that to somebody else and they go, what? I don't like that. And suddenly white people are really confused. It's like, well, well, isn't that's inherently a racist, isn't it? In assuming that everybody of the same color has the same lived experience and the same preferences. Exactly. And you would never expect that from a white person. You would never expect a white person to be the voice for all white people. <laughs> so, no. um, so knowing that you are likely to get it wrong and knowing that when you do and somebody calls you out on it doesn't mean that they're saying you're a massive racist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for want of a better way of putting it. I think that's so often what happens is somebody says, oh, I, oh, you know, I don't like that. And maybe the way that that is delivered is quite punchy, but that's because it's really hard to articulate yourself around this topic when you're on the receiving end. So, somebody kicks back and suddenly people go like, oh my God, I'm not racist. I didn't mean it in a racist way. And most of the time people of color aren't calling you a racist. <laughs> They're just saying, this is my preference. This is what, this is my boundary, etc., etc." So allowing that to happen without becoming defensive. Exactly. That's it, isn't it? It's, as white people, we have to not be defensive and we have to just get back up and keep going rather than being knocked back at the first mistake we make and thinking, right, well, I won't try again then because I just offended last time. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Grace, you've talked about the thread before now, haven't you? Talk to me about what that means. So I think that there's the the big kind of penny drop moment for me was when I started to see all of my experiences as connected. So for a long time, anytime I would have an incident that connected to race, I would tell myself, oh, that person's just an idiot. They just don't understand. You know, it's an isolated incident. And I started to realize that actually I'd been encouraged to believe that there was no correlation between the thing that happened last week and the thing that was happening now. I think for a long time, actually, I found that useful. I found it useful because it made me feel like there wasn't something that was inherently problematic about me. But there isn't anything inherently problematic about me. There's something inherently problematic about the system that we live in. And until you're able to connect those dots and accept that those things are connected, you're denying that the system exists. And so it was very difficult actually to accept that because it also means accepting that you're a victim of something. And I hate that idea. <laughs> I still hate that idea now. Um, but the truth is that all of those experiences that dated, you know, right back to being four years old, all of those experiences are connected and they're connected by racism. So connecting the dots and saying, actually, this is a thread that's run through my life is really hard to do, but I think it's really important. Mm. 
we recently recorded an episode with YouTuber V Katavu, who spoke incredibly candidly about her own experiences of racism, which were incredibly upsetting to hear. Um, so we decided to include a trigger warning when we edited the episode. What are your thoughts about, this is a heads up, this is really hard to hear? I think it's important because a person of colour might have had five things happen to them in the last little while that mean that they're quite raw. But I also personally have found it strangely comforting hearing about other people's experiences because obviously it's also showing me that I'm not alone. But I think what else it does is it lets you know that however you handle that situation and that incident is okay. I think most people of color wrestle with that thing that we were just saying about when white people offend somebody. Um, and it, it's difficult because you ruminate on it and you worry, oh, I did the wrong thing. People of color have that experience when they're responding to racism. You worry, it comes again back to that people pleasing thing, right? You worry that you've just upset somebody. And actually you were reacting to something that wasn't okay. But also then you worry that you walked away from a situation that you weren't firm enough with the other person. You know, you carry like a, a lot of weight. You feel like it's your responsibility to educate everybody. And it can be really difficult to feel like actually I couldn't do that today. So hearing from other people of color about their experience and their response can be really comforting. Let's go back to a few practical things. You talked earlier on about when you were growing up, you, your, your role models were performers and athletes. Can you give us a few examples of some really good, um, diverse role models for young people today? Do you know, if I'm really, really honest, I get asked that question quite a lot. And I don't feel like it's my job to provide those there's a part of me that goes, well, if I'm not going to do it, who else is going to do it? But that's allyship, right? That's something that white people can find out. You've all got Google too. So I don't make it my business actually to search out, you know, someone in STEM, somebody who works in design, somebody works in, you know, I had a teacher emailed me the other week and said that they wanted to do a spotlight on explorers and they wanted to make sure that they had like you know a diverse group of people to show to their students and could I let them know about any black explorers <laughs> I don't know anything about exploring <laughs> you know um do you feel that once again you were being asked to be the representative of all black people because you are black yourself yeah and also I'm being asked to do the work Yes. Google it yourself. All I'm going to do is go to Google, right? Yeah. So, if, so if you're looking for those role models, do the work. That's doing the work, right? Okay. Let me ask you a more specific question then. It would be really helpful to have any particular recommended reading that you find helpful that you would, you know, suggest to other people. Um, why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race is a great read. It's a tough read. I also personally read a lot of fiction rather than just conversations about racism from people of color, because I think it's really important. Your, your biases are only going to change the more you interact with people of color in various different spaces and who bring various different things. And so I like reading fiction. I think it's the vanishing half and that's really great. And as a not so gentle plug, um, Myself and the other self-esteem team co-founder, we have 
some fiction coming out in July 2022 and then again in July 2023 where there are characters of colour. Um, and that's actually YA, so that's for young people. But I think adults will love reading it too. All right, well, I'm sure that we will be in touch with you in the meantime, Grace, because we think you are absolutely fantastic. A brilliant role model in your own right and incredibly articulate and helpful today. Thank you so much for joining us. It felt great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST, when I'll be joined by award-winning entrepreneur, co-founder of Women's Network Albright and GDST alumna, Debbie Wasco OBE. So much happens in life because of the amazing women that fall into your path. And that really is the story of Albright. One of the things that was going to change the conversation for women's careers, if we could build out a monster global sisterhood of amazing women who could support, upskill, connect, fund, cheer on other women, then we might go some way to changing some of those really depressing stats, which have got worse during my career lifetime, not better. I'll see you then.